once again, and welcome to episode 92 of Be Boomer Unleashed. This week's episode, The History of Presidential Elections, Part 1, The Electoral College. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for today's episode and all the episodes of Be Boomer Unleashed. Before we get into today's episode, let me remind you, as always, where you can find our podcast. You can find us at beboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at Be Boomer Unleashed, on iHeartRadio at b.boomerunleashed. You can find our link on Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram at Be Boomer Unleashed, and on Twitter at Be Boomer Unleashed 1. And as always, we encourage you to drop us an email at beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Leave us your comments, your suggestions, your criticisms, and maybe some ideas for future episodes of the podcast. And if you'd like to be a guest on Be Boomer Unleashed, let us know what you'd like to talk about, and we'll try our very best to get you on the show. Well, we've got the presidential election coming up here in just a few short days, really. So I thought it would be good right before the election that we would talk a little bit about the history of presidential elections. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about the Electoral College and what's that all about. And uh, then next week we're going to talk about kind of a historical perspective of political parties and uh, where they came from and what that's all about and was it so from the beginning. And then uh, the next episode, we'll talk a little bit about the differences in the two major parties, our two major parties today, of course, Democrat and Republican. And there are some other minor parties we'll talk about, but uh, that episode will talk about the major differences between the ideologies of the Democrats and the Republicans. And then, good Lord willing, we'll finish this up, I guess, um, following Election Day, the week after the election. Maybe we'll know who the president is then. Maybe we won't, but we'll have a final episode kind of wrapping up this year's presidential election and where it goes from here. So uh, today we're going to talk a bit, like I said, about the Electoral College. Now, the Electoral College was established in Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, that um, uh, electoral college, some, you know, it's, it's, it's a confusing thing. People say electoral college, you hear about it, you need so many electoral votes to be elected. You need so many, you know, is that someplace you go to school? No, it's not. It's not a school, per se. It's a, a group of electors who actually cast their votes to elect the president based on what their states do. Now, that's actually, like I say, the body which elects the president and vice president of the United States, and each state has as many electors in the electoral college as it has representatives and senators in the United States Congress. So if you have uh, three congressmen and two senators, then you have five electoral votes. If you have two senators and 13 uh, uh, congressmen or congresswomen, then uh, 
you'd have 15 electoral votes. So some of the bigger states with larger populations have more electors. And um, that's the way the number of representatives are established is based on the population. So if you're a large state, you have more electors. If you're a smaller state, you have fewer, but they're all important. Um, When voters go to the polls in a presidential election, you know, actually we're voting for the slate of electors vowing to cast their ballots for that ticket in the Electoral College. You know, the president is not elected by popular vote, and we'll talk a little more about that later. It's actually the electoral vote that elects the president of the United States. Now, most most states, as a matter of fact, I think it's 48 out of the 50 states, require that all electoral votes go to the candidate who receives the plurality in that state. Now, it doesn't have to be majority. It just has to be the plurality. So let's say there are three candidates. Let's say you've got a Democrat, a Republican, and an independent running. And the um, Republican uh, gets 40 percent, and the Democrat gets uh, uh, 30 percent, and the independent gets 30 percent. That's 100 percent. Well, the Republicans had 40% of those votes. wasn't the majority. It was a plurality, but they get all those electoral votes. So uh, those, uh, those folks who are the electors that go and cast those votes, cast those votes based on who wins the plurality, if you will, of votes in that, uh, uh, in that election. Now, state election officials certify the popular vote of each state. So the popular vote of each state determines the the electoral vote. Now, here's an interesting fact that I picked up along this study. Electors cannot vote for a presidential and vice presidential candidate who both hail from the same state. So that's why that you never see... You know, president and vice president running who are both residents of California or both residents of Texas or both residents of West Virginia. It can't be. So that's why you always have somebody from one state as president, somebody from another state as vice president. And um, uh, because they've got to be from different states, the electors cannot cast their vote for a president, a vice president from the same state. I thought that was pretty interesting. I see the reasoning behind that. You didn't want one state to have all the a power or perceived power of that office. So that's, uh, that's the way it's done. Now, Maine and Nebraska, that's the two states, Maine and Nebraska, employ what they call a district system. They have two at-large electors, and they vote for the state's popular plurality, just like all the other um, states do. But uh, then they have one elector who votes for each congressional district's popular vote, the popular plurality of those districts. So let's say that uh, the Democratic candidate won the plurality for the state. All right. So they got two electoral votes in those states. 
Then let's say a Republican candidate won the uh, plurality in all of the other districts, so they would receive the votes for those. So you could actually win the plurality of the state but lose the total electoral votes based on that district-wide voting, and that's Maine and Nebraska only. Other states, it's winner-take-all, but Maine and Nebraska, they use that district system. Back in 2004, uh, Colorado voters rejected a proportional system in which electors would vote proportionally based on the state's popular vote. So they tried that in Colorado, didn't pass. The District of Columbia and 26 states bind their electors to vote for their promised candidate via a number of methods, including oaths and fines. In the modern era, very rarely have electors voted for someone other than whom they pledged. So it's possible, it's actually possible for uh, an elector to vote for someone that he or she was not pledged to by the state. It's actually possible to do that. But it happens rarely. Though still rare, electors more commonly changed their vote in the 19th century, particularly on the vote for the vice president, such as faithless electors. Um, They have never decided a presidency. So uh, that's not something we need to worry about because it would really create a stir if those electors voted for somebody that the people told them uh, that they didn't want to vote for. Now, since the mid-20th century, uh, on January 6th at 1 p.m., at 1 p.m. before a joint session of Congress, the vice president opens the votes from each state in alphabetical order. He passes the votes to four tellers. That's guys and gals who count the votes. Two from the House, two from the Senate, who announce the results. House tellers include one representative from each party and are appointed by the Speaker. At the end of the count, the vice president then declares the name of the next president. Now, with the ratification of the 20th Amendment to the Constitution, and starting with the 75th Congress that was in 1937, the electoral votes are counted before the newly sworn-in Congress elected the previous November. Now, the date of the count was changed in 57, 85, 89, 97, 2009, and 2013. So what that, what that means, that there were some sitting vice presidents, John Breckinridge in 1861, Richard Nixon in 1961, Hubert Humphrey in 1969, and Al Gore in 2001, all of those guys announced that they had lost their bid for presidency. So that'd be a tough pill to swallow, wouldn't it? Well, I'm a loser. I'm a big loser here. So anyway, but that did happen. And uh, for those vice presidents who were announcing the winners, they weren't successful. Now, since about, oh, I think it was uh, 1887, uh, U.S. Uh, sets the method for objections to electoral votes. During the joint session, members of Congress may object. They may object to individual electoral votes or to state returns as a whole. An objection must be declared in writing and signed by at least one representative and one senator. In the case of an objection, 
The joint session recesses, and each chamber considers the objections separately. And this is done in a session which cannot last more than two hours, with each member speaking for no more than five minutes. After each house votes on whether or not to accept the objection, the joint session reconvenes, and both chambers disclose their decisions. If they agree to the objection, the voters or the votes in question are not counted. If either chamber does not agree with the objection, the votes are counted. Objections to the Electoral College votes were recorded in 1969 and in 2005, and in both cases, the House and Senate rejected the objections and the votes in question were counted. Now, originally, the Electoral College provided the Constitutional Convention with a compromise between the popular election of the president and the congressional selection. So there was some discussion as to how this president should be elected. Is it a popular vote? Or do we just let the senators and the House members uh, elect the president? I mean, after all, the people have elected those folks to uh, serve their districts and represent those districts. So would uh, those people be the ones who... Uh, chose our president. Well, the Electoral College was a, a compromise, and um, that was uh, how it came about. And the 12th Amendment, ratified in 1804, changed the original process, allowing for separate ballots for determining the president and the vice president. So the process was amended a bit. Uh, the District of Columbia has had three electors, since the 23rd Amendment was ratified in 1961. So Washington, D.C. gets three electors. They they are allowed three electors. There have been other attempts to change the system, particularly after cases in which a candidate wins the popular vote, vote but loses in the Electoral College. In our last election, we had such a case. Hillary Clinton uh, won the popular vote, but Donald Trump won the electoral vote. And uh, she wasn't happy about that. And there was a lot of talk going around about that time about, oh, we just need to do away with the Electoral College, that antiquated system. We don't need that. It needs to be by the popular vote. Well, no, it doesn't. Because five times throughout history, a candidate has won the popular vote and lost the election. It's happened five times. Hillary wasn't the only one that that happened to. It's happened five times. Andrew Jackson in 1824 uh, to John Quincy Adams. Uh, Samuel Tilden in 1876 to Rutherford B. Hayes. Grover Cleveland in 1888 to Benjamin Harrison. Al Gore in 2000 to George W. Bush. And Hillary Clinton in 2016 to Donald Trump. So it's happened five times. You say, well, you know, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, yes, it is. You see, if you had only the popular vote, only the popular vote, those highly populated areas like New York and California and Texas and these highly populated areas those folks would decide who your president was. So the poor little sucker in West Virginia or Rhode Island uh, who didn't have very many people wouldn't have much of a say in electing the president. So that's why it's the electoral votes. 
you know, the um, the uh, president, President Trump, lost uh, the popular vote, not by much, but it was primarily due to those high-population liberal states who voted for Hillary Clinton. And almost all the states went red. They wanted President Trump as their president, except for a couple or three outliers. And that's why the Electoral College is important. If we ever go away from the Electoral College, then you'll have a select group of people in highly populated areas who decide who our president's going to be. The closest that Congress has come to amending the Electoral College since 1804 happened back in the 91st Congress in 1969, um, and they had a House Joint Resolution, 681 it was called, proposed the direct election of a president and vice president, requiring a runoff when no candidate received more than 40% of the vote. Well, the resolution passed the House in 1969, but failed to pass the Senate. So it's been tried before. It's been tried before, and I'm sure they'll float that balloon again sometime. In the case of an electoral college deadlock, or if no candidate receives the majority of votes, a contingent election is held. The election of the president goes to the House of Representatives. Wow. Each state delegation casts one vote for one of the top three contenders to determine a winner. Only two presidential elections in history, 1800 and 1824, have been decided in the House. Though not officially a contingent election, in 1876, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana submitted certificates of election for both candidates. A bipartisan commission of representative senators and Supreme Court justices reviewed the ballots and awarded all three states' electoral votes to Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio, who won the presidency by a single electoral vote. Wow, that was close, wasn't it? Well, elections are important, and the Electoral College is important. Like I say, a lot of people say, well, you know, with computers and everything you got going on today, you really don't need the Electoral College. Uh, you know, you can get almost instant results with these computer ballots and with the popular vote. Well, yes, that's true, but it's not a good thing. The Electoral College, our forefathers, had the wisdom to understand that just a few populated areas could determine the outcome of presidential elections. So let's say the let's say that California and New York were the two most populous areas in the United States. Every year, every presidential election, if it was a popular vote and they decided to do it, they could probably elect a president from New York and a vice president from California or a president from California and a vice president from New York and their votes would carry enough weight probably. Uh, to uh, squash the votes of smaller states like West Virginia and Rhode Island and Connecticut and and uh, Mississippi and some of these states. So the Electoral College is important. It's important 
for the election, it's important that it's there. Some people think it's a nuisance, especially the losers. <laughs> Those who lose think it's not a good thing. Well, this election is probably one of the most important elections we have had, at least in my lifetime. And, you know, we hear that a lot. This is the most important election. This is the most important election. And, and I suppose every election is important in its own right. But this year we're voting against not a Democrat and Republican. We're voting against two diametrically opposed systems. Do we want to continue to be a capitalist, nationalist country, or do we want to be a socialist um globalist country. That's the choice. And, you know, there. That's. I'm not casting stones. I'm just telling you what it is. If you, if you like capitalism and you like nationalism, uh, you've got to vote uh, for the Republican candidate. If you want socialism, if you want globalism, if you think that's important, then you need to vote for the Democratic candidate. That's up to you. I'm not going to attempt to tell you uh, what you need to do. I know what I'm going to do. I know how I'm going to vote. Uh, but uh, you've probably already made up your mind. Not much is going to change your mind. If you've decided that you can never vote for Donald Trump, if you're a never-Trumper, then you're probably going to vote for Joe Biden. If you're a conservative who likes nationalism and likes um, uh, conservatism, uh, you're probably going to vote for Donald Trump. And probably nothing I could say or anybody else could say is going to change your mind on that. But the purpose of these episodes was not just to decide or to try to influence how you were going to vote. I wanted to just share with you historically how presidential elections take place. And uh, the Electoral College... That's a pretty good place to start. That's good, good, good a place as any as I know of. So uh, hopefully that has shed a little bit of light on how that works for you and how those electoral votes stack up. So I guess we'll know sometime who gets the most electoral votes and who will be our next president. I'm not sure that that's gonna that we're gonna know who that is. On election night, usually sometime election night, we know who that is, but I just don't know if we're going to know it this time. Got all these mail-in ballots and all this stuff, and and uh, you got uh, people that are going to say cry foul, you know. And so, um, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. But it's important. And regardless of who you vote for, get out and vote. Exercise your constitutional right to vote. And if you haven't already mailed in your ballot, don't. Just go and vote in person. Put your mask on, put your wetsuit, put your, uh, you know, <laughs> put yourself in a plastic bubble, whatever you need to do to make you feel safe. But vote. However you vote and whoever you vote for, vote. We still have that right in this country. Maybe not for long, who knows? But right now we still have the right to choose those who would represent us. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. Next week, we're going to get a little discussion going on the historical perspective of uh, political parties, and we'll talk about that next week. Well, it's been good to be with you once again. Like I always say, it wouldn't be much fun if you weren't here along with us for these uh, podcasts. So, until we meet again, have a great week, and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye.